so there's this Twitter account called Paul Schrader's Facebook posts. Paul Schrader is a prolific Facebook user. <laughs> like to this very day, uh, he directed this movie we're talking about this week, The Comfort of Strangers. I think Ricky, you wanted to read some of these. Yeah, I'm still I'm still going over them. Uh... Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. Well, I'll take the pinned one then. The, the pinned one is from March. Oh, no, it's from November 9th, two thousand sixteen. I enter unwashed into a world that disrespects me and despises my values. <laughs> uh, March 22nd, 2021. If a man puts his hand on the small of a woman's back, touches her shoulder, brushes her ass, all she has to say is, I'm not comfortable with that. Parentheses, unless she is. And the man, if he has any sense of self-preservation, will back off. If not, she threatens to call in the Me Too police. How hard is that to understand? It was different in the past, but this is what it is now. The past is not now. Those who not only seek to rectify the injustices of the present, but also want to scour the history, scour history for injustices of the past, have a Sisyphean task. I don't really know what what side of that he's coming down on. It's actually like pretty complicated. Um, March 23rd, 2021, rewatching The Matrix, a film history milestone. But I admit to feeling a bit creepy during the Morpheus exhalation to a mass of writhing, orgiastic blacks straight from racist African mythology. <laughs> I think he's thinking of The Matrix 2. And also, it's just a yes. rave. It's just a rave. I don't know. Here's one from um, January 31st, 2021. This is a, This is good. Why do the actresses that incite me most turn out to be lesbians? Is that my problem or is it even a problem? Or does it define all the relationships I have had? <laughs> Just to mix it up a little bit, here's February 21st, 2021. Uh, so I'm going to say full sayonara to online poker. Too much agitas. Sad because I met a number of fascinating people. What the, what's the date on that? Uh, February 21st this year. So from February 19th of this year, I just got bounced from my second quarantine online poker group. <laughs> Cancel culture rules. Oh my God. Okay, so if, in fact, if online poker broke up with him. Here's one from January 25th, 2021. I, I remember this specifically. I had a friend who reached out to people in the poker game to find out what happened. Um, what did I say? One of the players was an attractive 30-ish woman, think Allison Williams, and I wondered how hot her boyfriend was. I asked to hold up a phone photo so the other members of the group could vote on how hot he was. Now this, I admit, was monumentally tasteless and yes, Himalayan inappropriate, even if a shade witty. Well, that was enough. They, they froze me out, meaning he got kicked out of a poker group. Oh my God. <laughs> that is like, I'm sorry, but like, I... <laughs> People are too sensitive. That's I mean, that funny. seems fine to me. That seems funny and fine to be like, oh, I bet like... your boyfriend must be really hot. Let's see. I just like, 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 do you guys think this guy? I I think I've, this is like when this people do this all the time. People do this now when, if you like, you take somebody's phone on Tinder and you look at the guys and like, are they hot or not? Or like, that's totally normal. People do that all the time. I, he's an old man. You signed up to like, He's joking around. He's trying to be playful and joking around. Have you ever seen a Paul Schrader movie ever in your life? Like, you know? return to Venice in search of romance. Desire takes them on a journey, sensual and mysterious. Love and madness become one. Nothing is as it seems. Good evening. You need help? Robert and Caroline live in the darkness of their passion. Do you and Colin do strange things? Together, the four lovers slip deeper and deeper into a world so erotic and bizarre, there is no separating tenderness and terror, longing and lust, pleasure and pain. <coughs> Together, they discover what they desire most. 
the comfort of strangers starring Christopher today we're talking about uh 1991's um late March early April of 1991 it's hard to say uh because it's a little bit different all online but we know that it came out the first week of April last week of March those are the where it could be um Paul Schrader's the comfort of strangers starring Rupert Everett Natasha Richardson Helen Mirren and Christopher Walken. Um, it is written by Harold Pinter, based uh, adapted from the novel by Ian McEwan. Um, and uh, it's one of the more beautiful movies we've watched recently. Both of us coming off of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 <laughs> had said we can't do this to our brains anymore. We have to watch something good. We have to watch so a good we, movie. We just have to do it. Yeah. So we chose this movie and I think we chose wisely. Oh my God, Ricky. It was such a pleasure to watch from the very beginning of the film. Like I, I it just put me in. I mean, basically just looking at the credits. Okay. So it's directed by, well, let's okay. Let's start this way. It's, based on an Ian McEwan novel, adapted by Harold Pinter, music by Angelo Badalamenti, closed oh by Giorgio Armani, directed cinematography, by... Yeah. Directed by Paul Schrader, cinematography by Dante Spinotti, who worked with Michael Mann throughout the 90s and into Public Enemies. Like, the deck is fucking stacked, oh technically, God. on this movie. Yeah, you're like, this is the world... Like, this has such a huge collection of heavy hitters associated with it. And I, I guess they weren't necessarily all heavy hitters to the extent they would become later on, like Battle of Menti specifically I'm thinking about was because Twin Peaks would have been like on right at this time or. Yeah, I believe Twin Peaks premiered um, in 90. Right. OK, so Twin Peaks is like hot and he's. Yeah, but I was just like, I, I do. So right away, basically, the vibe I got from this movie and, and I think partially this has to do with the novel, but it also is this is it's it's, it's kind of like a, a Merchant Ivory movie directed by Paul Schrader, who is the world's number one sleazebag. And so it's like, I, man, he's the man. I, it's just such an interesting combination of these like very highbrow sensibilities and then Paul Schrader's absolute gutter alcoholic sensibilities. And it works so well. It was so great. So this movie, so Paul Schrader has said this was part of his like kind of high style phase that started with American Gigolo, went into Cat People, and then uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, I believe. I might be getting the title incorrect. And then um, this movie. Um, and you can tell every shot in this movie is the definition of sumptuous. Um, it Everybody looks incredibly sexy in the movie. Oh Rupert Everett and Natasha Richardson just fucking ooze sex appeal throughout I mean, they just get sexier and sexier as the movie progresses. It's it's, they just, it's unbelievable. It's really interesting because there are definitely by the middle to the end of the movie, the plot becomes about how beautiful uh, Rupert Everett is. And they're just naked so much of the movie. They're naked so much that it kind of surpasses being sexualized. And you're just like, look at these perfect looking people. <laughs> they just look perfect. And they're just enjoying being naked and rolling around. And everyone around them is going like, look how beautiful you are. And they're like, oh, do you think? Oh, okay. <laughs> this is also a great example of when people say movies aren't horny enough anymore. Oh my God. This is a very horny movie. It's an and extremely it's, horny movie. Yes. And it's, and it's wonderful because of that. Like it's wonderful to watch a horny movie where there are reasons for the characters to be fucking right. They're like, they're, they're not sex scenes out of nowhere. I wouldn't care if they were out of nowhere. Sex scenes can be great when they're out of nowhere, but they are like, beautiful sex scenes between these two extremely hot people for a reason that we'll get into in a minute. Going back to the look of the movie, um, uh, Schrader, because he was going to be shot in Italy, he wanted to work with his production designer that he refers to in the Criterion interview with him on the Criterion site. This movie is available to watch on Criterion.com uh, if you want to watch it. But uh, he, he wanted to... he tried to get in touch with his production designer, Nando Scarfiati, who we refer to as his sort of visual teacher um, with American Gigolo and Cat People. But Nando was dying of AIDS and couldn't do it. He'd just been pulled off of a Bertolucci movie because he was getting sick. And that's how Dante Spinotti got, got involved because he's Italian and he wanted to, it was a reason for him to work where he lived. And um, I think, you know, Spinotti's one of the great cinematographers of the 90s, and you can really see it in, 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 in every shot of this movie. The movie opens with this beautiful shot 
um, this sort of dollying camera across the ceiling. Um, uh, how would you describe this this ceiling? It's just like this incredible ornate. Uh, yeah, mosaic. Ceiling. I guess is it a mosaic yeah. where it's just a tiled, you know, beautiful ceiling? I actually kind of, you know, don't one hundred percent remember because so much of this movie, it's like it's almost like uh, you can count on me. Where there's like these interstitials in the film that are just like jaw-droppingly beautiful shots of Naples that just come up every once in a while to kind of break up the narrative, and they're all so beautiful. But they do all kind of also. I don't exactly remember which one comes when in the movie. You know. Venice. Oh, did I say Naples? What did I say? Naples? Yeah. yeah you Venice. said Naples. Venice. It's okay. I'm in Venice. Yeah. Um, we should say what the movie is about. Um, Natasha Richardson and Rupert Everett are a couple. Um, they're not married. She's previously married with two kids and they're on a vacation in uh, Venice. Venice. Yeah. And it's they're They're having some problems with each other at the beginning of the vacation. And it's like unclear what the, where those problems stem from. It seems like it could be, because they're tired, you know, and on vacation, it could just be because they're not really communicating very well. All of them, to be perfectly honest, as as, as a person who's gone on troubled vacations oh God, in, in a relationship, it's a very relatable <laughs> first act. Very relatable. Like there's this after they um, they get really drunk at one point, and then they're having coffee, and they're just going the uh, the what's her name the the actress that's the woman I'm forgetting now Natasha I'm, Richardson. Yeah. So they're having coffee and Natasha Richardson is saying like, let's just go back to the hotel. We can have coffee there. And Rupert Everett's like, I already ordered. And so we just, and she's like, okay. And then they just sit like looking different directions for a second. And she's like, this place is like a prison. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I have been on that vacation for sure. Yeah. I've experienced that specifically where it's like, my girlfriend has been like, I want to do this thing. And I'm like, but we have already said we're doing this one thing right, and yeah. that's where my brain is committed and why would we just walk away from this thing that we're trying to do I just ordered us both breakfast and coffee it'll be here in like one minute you just want us to get up which and- is which is a thing that gets him into trouble at the end of the at the end of the movie which, which we'll get to which is this idea of his polite manners you know his the idea of polite society and like what you can and cannot turn down yeah um, it's- but so they're traveling in Venice and they're having a hard time. And then one night uh, they wake up in the middle of the night, I guess maybe because they're jet lagged and um, they go walking around Venice at night, looking for a restaurant. They can't find one. They bump into Mr. Christopher Walken, who is in a white suit and is fucking amazing. And apparently Walken learned an Italian accent, but he sounded like a, a guy from Brooklyn with an Italian accent. Well, so look, and I want to talk about this like right at the top because we didn't say, but he does. He's having voiceover right at the beginning and he is doing the Italian accent in the voiceover. And I'm like, oh, he's going to have an Italian accent in this movie. And then he comes into the movie and he just talks like Christopher Walken, except occasionally he's saying something with a little bit of an accent. But he is the whole movie telling you about how he's Italian and he's like speaking Italian. And it was, I, I thought that part was pretty funny. I mean, it, it is the ni- early 90s. Like it's the time of this of like Sean Connery in uh, the Highlander being Spanish, but just like talking how he talks <laughs> or being in Hunt for Red October and just talking how he talks. So it's like, <laughs> I thought... Is is he supposed to just be Italian? Because they say that he, his he's married to a Canadian, so they lived in Canada for a while. And his someone in his someone else in his family. Oh, he grew up in London, right? But I think he's supposed to be Italian. I think you know, yes. and and yeah, it is, is confusing because he has a very thick Italian accent in the first voiceover, and then never again. So, so he finds them and realize and like talks to them for a second, realizes that they haven't eaten and he takes them to a bar to get food, but there's no food there. And he just supplies them with a lot of red wine while he tells them this extremely long, boring fucking story that reoccurs multiple times in the movie beautifully. Like, but it, 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 it reoccurs in, in sort of in, in, in cut off ways. Whereas this is where he tells the story in full and they are so bored by it, and the movie is almost bored by it too. And it just suddenly, oh. like last, like uh, last year at Marion Bad style, just kind of pans away from them and starts following different couples and people and clothes inside this Venice bar. And it's such a beautiful sequence of the film, and it takes you kind of out of Walken's monologue, but it's supposed to, and then you get dropped back into it at just the right moment, so you remember 
kind of the necessary things. That would be impossible to explain without describing my mother and sisters, and that would only make sense if I first described my father. In order to explain how I met my wife, I would have to describe my father. You want me to do that? Would you? Really? Like it is that? Shall I do that? All right. All right. My father was a very big man. All his life, he wore a black mustache. When it turned gray, he used a little brush to keep it black, such as ladies use for their eyes. Mascara. Everyone was afraid of him. My mother and my four sisters, uh, at the dining table, you could not speak unless spoken to first by my father, but he loved me. I was his favorite. He was a diplomat all his life. We spent years in London, Knightsbridge. Every morning, he got out of bed at six o'clock and went to the bathroom to shave. No one was allowed out of bed until he'd finished. My eldest sisters were 14, 15, I was 10. One weekend, the house was empty for the whole afternoon. My sisters whispered together. Their names were Eva and Maria. They called me and they led me into my parents' bedroom. They told me to sit on the bed and be quiet. They went to my mother's um, dressing table. They painted their fingernails, they put creams and powder on their faces, they used lipstick. They pulled the hairs from their eyebrows and brushed mascara on their lashes. <laughs> they took off their white socks and put on my mother's silk stockings, panties. They sauntered about the room looking over their shoulders in the mirror. They were beautiful women. Although I don't know how necessary it is to remember what the monologue is, because the way that the movie ends using that monologue, I will say it kind of reminds me of um, Oh Hello on Broadway, <laughs> where they, they talk about how like oftentimes plays just end with some abstract uh, sentence that like, or like thing that didn't, doesn't feel like it had much to do with the whole story. Like at the end of, Oh, hello. He's like, Oh, waiter, I'll have two root beers. And then the lights fade. There's a little like that at the end of this movie. Um, no, I mean, I, well, I want to say like, that is one of my favorite sequences of the movie, that sequence in the bar that you're talking about where the camera, because obviously we've been following them through these alleyways and into this bar and then Christopher Walken, it's shot in this very like, arresting kind of way where it's these huge like head and shoulders of the actors and it's going back and forth like that for a while and then the camera just kind of drifts off walking and then roams around the bar for a minute and comes back it was so unexpected when it happened to me and i i thought it was so beautiful to look at and it was so interesting and it's also kind of mirroring the experience you might have if you were you know one of the people in this couple where you're just kind of like a little drunk and you're looking around the room and you're not really paying attention. And then at a certain point you start paying attention again. I thought, I thought that was really very well done. It was, yeah. The, the monologue, which is the same monologue that he gives at the beginning of the opening you, of the movie. You have it memorized. I also want, I would think we should both do it in our Christopher Walken accent. It's like, it's like a, it's a, Oh my God. It's almost like, I wish the movie were more popular because it's deserving of being like a, cl a classic like Christopher a Walken monologue. Forever. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Yeah. I want to do it. Something he goes, along, I want to do it. He goes like this. He goes, I mean, I might be missing a sentence at the beginning. He goes, uh, all his life, my father had a black mustache. When it went gray, he used a little brush, such as ladies use, mascara. <laughs> That's pretty good. All I could, rem all I could remember was that he be prefaces that with, my father was a big man. Everyone was afraid of him. <laughs> but I was his favorite. <laughs> But that monologue then goes on and on. He tells this story about how his sisters, he embarrassed his sisters to his father, but then they got back at him and his father beat the shit out of him and didn't talk to him for six months. And he pissed and, then, and shit all over his father's study after eating a bunch of marshmallows and cakes. <laughs> and then he that's how he meets his wife. <laughs> that's how he meets his wife. To tell you how I met my wife, first I'd have to tell you about my sisters. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. It's just to, amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch Christopher Walken be Christopher Walken at such a high level in this movie. It's like King of New York. You're just like, oh my God, he's just chewing the scenery. It's yeah, so oh beautiful. God. He's chewing the scenery so hard. And he's at the absolute top of being Christopher Walken. Yes. And I you know, to a certain extent, it doesn't really make sense that he's this character 
from the way it's written, you know, I'm sure if you were like a fan of the Ian McEwan novel, you would be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> but he's got such a presence. He's so magnetic that you kind of get so it. magnetic because the whole thing is like he's casting a spell over the two of them, the whole movie. And they they know they should stay away, but they just kind of can't. Uh and it's because he's so forceful and magnetic. and Yeah. And he gets so excited to talk about his father. He does that <laughs> thing he does where he doesn't do it all that often in movies where he really smiles really big, like yeah. a big, genuine smile. He's like, really? Okay. 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 Um, then they, le- they, they leave and they're like, God, that guy was awful. And it's like, a, again, like a really great depiction of when you're traveling and you meet a, a stranger who wants to hang out with you. And you're kind of excited to hang out with a stranger or a local. And you realize like halfway through hanging out with them, they're just really, they're really boring. They suck. <laughs> they're really, and the reason you don't, the reason this person seems so exciting and exotic to you is that you don't like people like this. So you don't spend any time with them. You know, like there are people like this where you live and you don't talk to them on purpose, you know? Um, they leave, they get sick. And that's when they start, they have that scene at the cafe where they're kind of like, we should, she's like, we should leave. And then Walken suddenly reappears and uh, he feels bad because he kept them out too late and they look hungover and he takes them back to his house. And that's when things start getting a little weird. They meet his wife, Helen Mirren, and suddenly they wake up at the house uh, in a bedroom, totally naked. Um, and God, they look so hot. Oh, so hot. Oh my God. Both of them look absolutely it's perfect. Like silk sheets in this and like a golden Italian. sunlight. Yeah. They're in this amazing bed from the like 1600s or something with you know, like yellow silk sheets. It's, it's amazing. And it's actually and really so, interesting too, I think too, because like in the beginning of the movie, there are these shots of Ian McElroy of, uh, of Rupert Everett where it's like, he looks like he has the world's craziest body shape. It looks like his shoulders are like 10 yeah. inches from his ears. Like it seems they go so far down, but then he spends the rest of the movie shirtless looking like a fucking God. So I don't know what the hell is going on with that. And then uh, it begins to feel a little sinister, right? Because right away we see them and we, the viewer see them naked in bed and it's like, great obviously to see these beautiful people naked but then we see like a door closing like someone's been watching them and then this establishes this kind of truly ominous tone that i think exists for the rest of the movie yeah is this when you started to recognize how weird the movie was gonna get yes definitely well the scene i think it's just because of how um one of the things I like about the first act of the movie is it as somebody who spent a lot of time in Europe and getting like really drunk in Europe, I, I enjoyed the verisimilitude that it was like these, they were in these shitty alleyways in Venice and they were like lost and they're annoyed and they can't find anywhere to eat. And I'm like, yeah, that's all like that. That's like the Europe I'm familiar with. But then you cut to this the, where Christopher Walken lives is like some kind of insane palazzo like mansion. They have this scene with between Helen Mirren and Natasha Richardson where they're in this room that must be like a hundred square feet with like a huge terrace and there's just cushions everywhere. And there, and I was like, Oh, okay. Like something else is happening. Like, cause I think there's something inherently, and I think the movie kind of plays with this. It would, when you're in the space of someone who's that wealthy, there's just such a power imbalance that you just feel, even if they're not, you know, threatening you exactly you just feel at their mercy. It's very strange, you know? Yeah. Um, I thought that was really well done. This this scene in the morning after they wake up and they don't have their clothes, um, eventually, like, Natasha Richardson spends some time with Helen Mirren, who tells Natasha Richardson that she watched them sleep for a little while and that uh, Rupert Everett looked so beautiful and like a sleeping baby. <laughs> Uh, and there's a kind of an awkward scene between them when Rupert Everett comes into the room and neither of them are wearing clothes. They're wearing these robes because Walken and Mirren had washed their clothes for them and not put them back in the room. Yeah, right. And then eventually they're given their clothes and there's this great scene where Richardson takes Mirren out of the room somewhere and it's just Walken and uh, Everett. And I love the way this scene is staged because there's a moment where like the women leave the room and it's very obvious Everett and Walken have nothing to say to each other. Yes. And it's really awkward for like the first few beats where they're just kind of walking around each other. And it's like another moment where it's where I felt like, God, I have been there. Yeah. Where like the, 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 
the the middle people have left the room and I don't know how to talk to this person right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, like we only have something in, to talk about because of this person, these other people that are in the room when it's just you and me, like like literally they just start going like, hey, uh, what's that on the shelf? <laughs> like, and, and that leads to a moment where Walken starts talking about his father again because he just loves talking about his father. And he starts talking about uh, what men and women were like back in the day. It's like a very sexist... Mm-hmm monologue about the differences between men and women he's basically like tim allen doing stand-up and uh everett says so this is just a museum of the old days and walken punches rupert everett in the stomach and then walks away puts a cigarette in his mouth and winks at him well first he like puts his hands on his shoulders and he's kind of rubbing them you know like oh it's gonna be okay come on it's gonna be okay you know Oh, that's weird. true, right? It's but very, it's like this, very weird. This, and it's like this wonderful establishment of dominance, and also like showing him what the old world, you know, was. Yeah, and because um, it's kind of like Rupert Everett is kind of like testing him a little bit, like he's like walking yes. close to him, and he's kind of like making fun of him a little bit, and he's kind of trying to assert some dominance. So Christopher Walken just punches him in the stomach as hard as he can. Like, yeah, I definitely, I 100% didn't see it coming. And then I also love what you were saying, that the scene just ends. That's the end of the scene. And then it doesn't get brought up again until like 45 minutes later in the movie. Cut to them having dinner. It's awkward. And then as Natasha Richardson and Rupert Everett are on their way out, they notice that, uh, that like, or she notices that Walken has some candid photos of Everett that he took that we actually saw someone taking those photos earlier in the movie. And then after this, Richardson and Everett just start fucking like they're so yeah, tuned up. It's some kind of this couple, right? They've been like energized by meeting them and, you know, yes. being naked for so long. And cause this has been a, it's been a plot point in the movie that they are like not having sex and we're seeing them sleeping in two separate beds and they seem kind of like not that engaged with each other. They're talking about, are we going to break up or are we not? Yeah. And then there's this, this scene, this like marathon sec- section of them, like fucking really intensely. <laughs> For like self quite a bit, which and yeah, it's really hot. It's really hot. It's really very well done. They're both super hot. I mean, it is all the stuff we're talking about, like the way the movie is plotted. It is. I mean, it's based on this novel, right? It's very, very novelistic. And you do get the sense a lot of times that like, you know, something's being communicated beyond what's happening, which is like very rare in a movie these days. It was very nice. Well, that's also, very novel. That's also Pinter. Right? Yeah, like, that's well, also yeah. Harold Pinter and like the way that he writes dialogue. Like there's all these moments where people ask questions and the question is not answered. And instead someone's, you know, walk in, will say again, something like I used to get my hair cut there. <laughs> it is um, interesting. Cause there is a very, I, I, one thing I thought was so Harold Pinter is there's people like shouting existential questions at each other all the time in this movie. Like there's a police interrogation at some point and they're saying to Natasha Richardson, um, why did you come to Venice? What were you hoping to find here? And I was like, yeah, why, why did you come here? And she's like, you can just see her being like, why did I come here? Why do I go anywhere? You know, like. <laughs> Apparently the actors had uh, a really hard time with the dialogue and they were asking Schrader to rewrite it. And at one point, Natasha Richardson called Harold Pinter on the phone and said, what is the relationship with my children's father? Because like the, the father of her actual children mm-hmm. in the movie and Pinter apparently said, I've never answered a question like that for an actor before. And I never will. It's in the script. If you can't find it, that's on you. <laughs> Which is oh so baller. Like, that's so great. And then apparently the sex scenes weren't written. It said in the script that they were going to have like, marathon sex or something but it wasn't written and schrader was like we need to have a sex scene will you write it and and pinter said no and so schrader wrote it and schrader like was like sent it to him and was like i wrote it and then like he said within 20 minutes he got faxed back like a total rewrite of everything (laughs) oh my god yeah don't let paul schrader don't let paul schrader loose on a sex scene with no direction if you're a fucking harold pinter (laughs) writing a film like jesus christ I mean, it is so funny because um, it is written in this very way, this very like arch British way where like your people aren't saying the thing they want to be saying ever, you know, except for Christopher Walken, who's just talking constantly. Um, yeah, so I, I can see that. I can see that. I can I can definitely see their questions, you know, but that's what Harold Pinter does. 
so after their marathon sex, they, um, they, you know, they're having a good time. They somehow end up back at, um, uh, walk-in and Helen Mirren's house. It's sort of by accident, but, um, they end up back in there and then I don't want to give away the ending, but things get far more sinister. And then, uh, we come to the end of the movie there. And I have to say, I loved the ending so much. I like almost stood up and cheered alone. I was so excited for most multiple moments in the ending, the climax, and then the final shot of the movie with the monologue reappearing. I was like, so excited that 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 the movie did that um but yeah that's it that's that i mean that's that's the narrative of the movie but it's just a a a psychosexual drama between these two couples a kind of what's afraid who's afraid of virginia wolf but even more um uh treacherous i would say yeah so to just talk so yeah i keep saying it's based on this book just to tell you know this is the plot you know it's from what i can tell a pretty faithful adaptation of this book you know but obviously we're saying with done in harold pinter and paul schrader's style but so it's ian McEwan's. it's only his second novel that he wrote came out in 1981 he would have been like 33 years old and it's not really like a well-regarded one of his books it's kind of i mean it's not like the worst but it's like definitely not the best and i was reading there are some reviews uh, on the wikipedia page that are really funny of the uh so here is um the Kirkus Reviews reviewer says um, the film ends in a, quote, a kinky symbolic sexual situation, which is neither effective as storytelling nor freshly resonant as metaphor. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Um... <laughs> I liked it. I mean, I, I was looking up reviews as well and of the movie, and it wasn't very well reviewed. The movie? Oh, this is of the book. Yeah, no, I know. I'm saying the movie, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought the movie was great. Um but it was it was kind of it's kind of funny. People are a little sniffy about this book. And basically people think it's a little puerile, you know, and a little bit um, like he's trying to write something sexy and get, you know, make people buy it. That kind of a thing. Like, um, oh, God, wait, let me let me find this one. Um, oh, yeah. So then for, this is from the New York Times review. No reader will begin the comfort of strangers and fail to finish it. A black magician is at work. And yet everything that is erotic is also sick. This novel is definitely diseased. (laughs) I mean, there is a problem with critics in their moment, not being able to recognize good work because of violence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is some violence in the movie, right? Like we're saying, but there's kind of like a more generally a threat of violence. I mean, I can see the argument, honestly, Ricky, like I loved the movie and I had a really good time watching it, like especially compared to the other things that we've seen. But like, I understand the criticism, which is that like, it doesn't quite understand the sex part of it. And it just, it, it's just kind of happening, you know, like, and the, the S and M's there's an S and M undercurrent in it, but it doesn't seem to really understand like S and M exactly. It just kind of like, thinks it's like crazy and you know people like to hurt each other and makes turns them on which i mean that kind of is snm but also like kind of not you know well i don't think the movie is trying to make a statement on snm i think that the i think that the character is a is a sadist right right he's not like a bdsm traveler player he's an He's a genuine sadist. The but, story he tells about his father, the way he treats his wife. But isn't that supposed to be like, that's the appeal to, uh, for Helen Mirren. I mean, she views it as like a sexual thing, that dynamic between the two of them. Well, she Don't says not think? initially, not initially, but then she grew to like it. I mean, at one point she says to Rupert Everett before, uh, they leave the first time. She says, I can't, she says, please come back. I can't leave. Right, 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 right. But then again, she seems to be so invested in this as well in what's going on by the end. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's like spearheading a lot of it, you know? So to what extent is she even telling the truth in these earlier scenes? Like they just were trying to keep them in the house, I feel like. I mean, there was a point about, so yeah, like you're saying, they bring them back to their house, they wake up naked and then they kind of are, they're like joking around, but they're like, oh, you have to say you're going to stay or we won't give you your clothes back. Ha ha. And then I, a few minutes later, I was like, so they've been kidnapped. And like they're, they have been kidnapped at this point, but they don't seem it's like it's like they don't want to bring up that they've been kidnapped, you know, in, in this kind of way where it's like if you don't mention it, maybe it hasn't really happened, you know, and also like it would be impolite to bring up that they've been kidnapped. Do you think that the ending is too ambiguous? 
ambiguous well i mean it's certainly not ambiguous in a certain sense like i mean definitely something happens you know yes but i i mean in terms of like one of the things that ebert says about the movie is that um ebert says about the movie the the movie is ultimately not quite successful when it was over i felt there was some additional payoff or explanation still due perhaps the arbitrary unfinished nature of the story is part of its purpose but I felt that characters this interesting should not be allowed to remain complete ciphers. Well, see, so this is, yeah. So I think Harold Pinter and the whole school of British theater, film, and television that he that he is a member of and helped inspire, which is this thing where, like, I, but they're very, very ambiguous, and they think the more ambiguous something is, the more meaningful it is. And I don't think this is as bad as like some third-rate, you know, ITV show that's currently on, you know, some detective show or something. But I think there's something to that that it's like it seems meaningful for everything to be like completely ambiguous. But at a certain point, if you or I are unable to determine what's happening in a in a film, I mean, it's, we're not idiots. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's that ambiguous that you literally aren't really sure what's going on. But then again, I do think the film is... I, I don't personally have that problem with this movie, though. I feel it's very evocative, and you kind of get it. And But I, I did think the climax was just a little... I mean, obviously, it's building to some kind of event, you know, and, and I and I was uh, glad that it happened, but I don't know. Something about it was a little weird. It was... I didn't really... Out of all the things that were going to happen in this ending climactic scene, what actually happened was not what I expected at all. And I didn't understand exactly what I was seeing, except maybe in the realm of like, not to talk about Fight Club, but like what they do to Jared Leto in Fight Club. It's like kind of like that. Like, is that the idea? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't totally know the answer for that. Um, but that said, I didn't really mind not knowing the answer because I thought it was evocative yeah. and, and beautiful. And then I thought that the the final moments of it sort of stripped my need for meaning of that because they were so clearly not going to be meaningful moment. Like uh, not, not that they weren't going to be meaningful. They weren't going to be ex uh, expository. They weren't going to ex explain anything, which I ended up really liking. And if I found it satisfying, none nonetheless, it might've been that I just found it satisfying on like a cool way. I was like, Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. But, like well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't exactly have a symbolic an understanding of the symbolic. I mean, I think that this movie in a way is a kind of a victim of its own success because it's like it, it really, when you get down to it, it's like an evocative moody nightmarish, like full of dread kind of yeah, psychosexual thriller thing. But it's, it's so well-made and it's by people who are so pedigreed that you're maybe like expecting a little more from it than it really has, you know, like this is kind of what it's a, it, it, it's it's all these extremely talented people making something that's kind of trashy, you know? And yeah, maybe it doesn't completely make sense a hundred percent, but like, who cares? It's like very, you have a lot of emotions and it's beautiful to look at and it's so I well done, you know, and the acting is great. It's so interesting. You call it kind of trashy, but I really feel like reading the reviews to it. It's like, Oh my God, you, you people were so spoiled. You had no idea how good that you had it to like give a bad review to this movie. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, like if this movie came out right now, I would I would go nuts for it. It's like when Only God Forgives came out, and people were like, "Oh, this is so bad." I was like, "Fuck, are you talking about? It's like, great. this is it's like a great, yeah. This is like a sh a swing. This is a swing for the fences. Like, it's not entirely successful, but yeah, come on. But it's like somebody who's really trying, who's using the success of the one film to try to do something like really ambitious, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, people, I don't know. I, I, I mean, don't, you didn't think this movie was trashy. I mean, it's like sex and murder and, you know, like nasty big men lurking in alleyways. And like, no, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was trashy. I thought it was elegant. It is. It is elegant in a certain way. I mean, Christopher Walken, right? Like he's so elegant yeah. in this movie and his white suit. And he's always like kind of fixing his button on his blazer. I mean, I guess that's just like what I gen what I tend to watch when I consider trash and what I watch well, is trash. Yeah. Is like, See, like, this is why you can't have this conversation with you particularly yeah. because for you, trash is like, yeah, like someone getting their face rubbed off by a motorcycle wheel while like a naked woman is having sex with them, you know? That sounds amazing. Is that in something? <laughs> Holy shit. I got to write that movie title down. Yeah, Let's yeah, yeah. Up. But if you're a real classy fellow like me, yeah, 
I mean, I think it's, but I, I don't mean to talk about it. Like, like I don't like, think it's I like, good. I loved what, it. You, I thought it was really great. I really loved you know it. What I, you know what I watched last night? I watched Fear with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon oh, yeah. and William Peterson, James Foley's Fear. That to me is great trash. Mm-hmm. That is a trashy movie that is that is very polished, well-directed, and totally trashy. There is something about, I think, Schrader who is maybe using elements of of um exploitation is not the right word but elements of 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 the tawdry yeah but for the purposes of the existential you know he's the classic you know jim thompson as crime writer but operating in a robert brisson style yeah i mean i love like he's not paul schrader i i love his sensibility because he seems like He's not just, he's since just somebody who genuinely has been through some shit and like has genuinely has some real issues. And like, so when you see him, when, when characters in his movie get drunk and fall asleep in an alleyway, it has a verisimilitude that it doesn't have when another director does it because that Paul Schrader <laughs> has done that many times. You know, he knows what it's like. The little moments, like when they fall asleep, when they get drunk in the alley and fall asleep, they get woken up by a bunch of schoolgirls coming through, which I thought was great. It's, it's in a way it's kind of a cliched film thing, but in another way, I thought it was actually really true to life. You know, like that's what happens when you get drunk and fall asleep in an alley. You know, you don't know where the f- you, you are. Have you ever gotten drunk and fallen asleep in an alley? I haven't gotten, I haven't fallen asleep in an alley, but I've definitely been in like, like really bad. Oh, I, I'd say I've been up all night and gotten been really, really drunk and then found myself like in the daytime world somewhere, you know, and had to deal oh, with Oh, yes, of, co- of course. Absolutely done that. Yeah. Yeah. Stumbled out of somebody's apartment at like seven o'clock in the morning, 10 yeah. o'clock in the morning. And you're like, oh my God. Oh my God. I have to go like get a coffee or something. Like, can I drink a coffee? I don't. And like everybody's because looking at you, you know. Had to leave because like all the beer was gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like they couldn't deliver any more beer because it was morning. Yeah. Right. Right. Because you can't, you've like broken open the bottle of beer and like licked out all the beer <laughs> drops that are inside <laughs> the beer bottle. And then you just kind of like walked around the house for a while and, you know, smoked like 10 cigarettes. You licked all the mirrors. I mean, cups that you yeah, were right. drinking the beer out of. And you were like, ah, uh, I know it's already 5 a.m., but there's just like a little bit of beer left. I should just go ahead and do it. Like, what am I going to do? Not do it, you know? And I have to talk a little bit more about how uh, Wes Anderson was like a huge turning point for me as a as a teenager. You have more you have more parliaments, right? Because I'm out of parliaments, <laughs> but you have more parliaments. Um, so Chris, what is your favorite part of this movie? Oh, Ricky. Um <laughs> what we so we talked about this scene in the cafe a bunch with Christopher Walken, but there is a great line that he has, which I texted you. Um I don't know if this is my like literally my favorite part, but like he goes He's pouring them wine and he says, it's a very good wine. It's full of nourishment. <laughs> it's just like, he just hits the word nourishment so hard. It's very weird. And it's a very weird way to describe wine also. But yeah, I think in I general, would... Christopher Walken, Christopher Walken, it's amazing to watch him in this film. It's completely insane. I would say the cafe scene is my, is my, is, is the high point for the movie of the movie for me, that and the sex scenes. Yeah. Um, but the, the, uh, the cafe scene before the monologue when like you said the wine it's filled with nourishment or he's like you know and he's like to tell the story about my dad i'd have to tell the story about my mom to tell the story about my mom i have to tell the story about my sisters to you know and then he goes on and on and on and then he's like do you want to hear about story about my dad and you can tell how excited and kind of annoying he is yeah and then the camera just sort of starts Elaine Renan across the across the cafe and it's really beautiful um ricky what did you think the most 90s thing about this movie was that's hard it's kind of timeless kind of timeless and it's also if anything it's like an 80s film i mean like i mentioned ivory it's kind of got those kind of vibes very classy or it's also like talented mr ripley or something right it takes place in this kind of timeless europe and it feels very 80s the whole sheen and style of it feels very 80s because i think that's the style that schrader was developing in the 80s with the movies that were referenced before so yeah it does definitely feel more 80s what's most 90s about it i mean that's that's a really hard one for this movie uh i i I honestly can't think of one it's like maybe natasha richardson yeah maybe natasha richardson i mean christopher walken not to talk about him again but him being cast as the lead in this movie him being like the tentpole star of the movie i would say is very like early 90s 
Um, but even I think just that Paul Schrader, this this particular period of the late 80s and early 90s, that Paul Schrader would be attached to direct to like this kind of film. Like he's mm-hmm. he's only doing this kind of thing for a very defined amount of time, you know, like that it would be like a movie where the costumes are by Giorgio Armani and the director is Paul Schrader, you know, and it's not just like they bought suits somewhere. There's like all kinds of crazy custom things, you know, robes and things. Maybe it's Giorgio Armani. But that's not a particularly 90s thing. Yeah, that's like 70s through to the... I guess it kind of ends in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Angelo Badalamenti? Oh, Angelo Badalamenti, for sure. Yeah. Although but I his score isn't that... It's pretty it's unobtrusive. It's a beautiful score. I think it's pretty unobtrusive, it's, right? Yeah, it's not a... It's not a kind of classic battle. What we think of as a battlementy score. It actually at times sounds like Nina Rota's Godfather score. I mean, I think the opening theme is a little battlementy ish. Like it does have that kind of Twin Peaksy sound, but it doesn't really occur a lot during the film. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I had a kind of a similar problem with the next question we always talk about, which is what we've grown out of. I mean, in a certain way, everything. Oh, I know what that is. Oh well, you please after you. Sex scenes. Oh yeah, that's definitely true. The sex scenes. We just don't. We just don't have sex scenes in movies anymore. Horniness. We don't have horniness in movies. And the whole movie like said, is about sex. Basically, the entire movie is about sex. Yeah, like I said, we watched the movie Fear last night, and my friend was like, "God, this movie's so horny." <laughs> right? Like, I mean, not just the fingering on the roller coaster, but also there's a scene where Alyssa Milano bends over in front of William Peterson, and he like can't help but look, and Mark Wahlberg's like laughs at, like secretly smiles at him. <laughs> And my friend, that was my friend was like, man, this movie is horny. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, remember when movies were horny? It was cool. It's, I mean, it's one of the major human emotions, you know, like. It's also like what movies are kind of, I mean, they're, you're filming bodies in motion. Yeah, you like, you want, you have to want to look at the people, you know, so like being horny is like a pretty natural emotion for a movie to have. And but it, we do live, we live in this like weird time where people are like, very scared of being publicly horny or like, you know, Weird. because no one really knows how to talk about attraction or like, or, or like what's sexy. It's like, yeah, it's very, it's a very toxic time to be horny. It's you're really, it's basically illegal to be horny. We really need like late 1990s John Waters to come back and make a movie about like disgusting perverts and make them the heroes, you know, like that would, that is something that would not play now at all, but it is kind of needed. I think. I feel like you're not allowed to think a pervert like disgust a pervert is disgusting or something, you know, like, well, there's no such thing like, as a pervert, maybe, I guess. Right. I mean, they're right. You're not allowed to king shame. You're not allowed to do this. So there's like nothing transgressive. But I at mean, the same why... time, you're not allowed to ex- positively express those things. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if I, if I know ambiently that someone has a kink, like obviously I can't make fun of them for it. But if I were to be like, mm, show me your little tootsies, then it's like, Ooh, gross. You're disgusting. Get out of here. You know? Um, yeah, like it's one of the reasons why I watch like like love watching '90s movies so much. Not just this year, but '90s movies because it was that period of time where, and we talked a little bit about this during the Silence of the Lambs podcast, where transgression became very mainstream for a little bit. So okay. you had these like big budget movies that were dedicated to like sexed up perverts and just and sex scenes. Yeah, and it was you had Paul Verhoeven working. You know, you had uh, like a movie like this. Then you had like seven right you have these yeah. like moments and you have the nine inch nails video closer you have this moment of time where like it's you, you i was watching that as a child like a on television prison. all the time yeah and you were listening to tools enema album with the song prison sex on it you know like yeah it was all a very that it was a very it, well, because like the censorship in the 90s kind of went away to a certain extent so you were allowed to to do these things even though it was controversial they would get made you know but they were controversial in a different way, right? They were controversial because someone said, you can't do that. And 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 then artists were like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. Suck off, fuck off. Suck right? off and so they, fuck off. Suck off, suck off, fuck off, tipper. And so they did it. And, you know, it was like crazy and wild. Whereas now it would be like, you can't do that because what you're actually doing is profiting off of the shock that people feel looking at a sexual act they've never seen. And that's not the way we should be depicting people with 
um, sexual proclivities that are not necessarily talked about all the time. That's Which what is we call kink I mean, shaming. It's fair and it's, like, and it's true, but at the same time, I think you know it's. I think it's fair, but it, you know, I think it's fair, but at the same time, it often does still amount to a you can't. And well, this is, I think we've talked about this, right? I mean, this is the, I, my pet theory or lots of people's pet theory, like all the generation X guys that have gotten themselves, you know, canceled or become these like free speech warriors, like Glenn Greenwald or uh, even Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan. It's like, they just have this very 1990s, 1980s attitude. That's like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, Oh, you say, I can't say it like, Oh, censors. I can say whatever I want, which was the attitude. That was the cool attitude in the nineties. It is just the whole world has shifted its point of view, but they are unable to, they are unable to change at all. Like they're still hardwired to be like, if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do it, you know, but it doesn't really work like that anymore. But there's good versions and there's bad versions of that, right? I mean, there's like good criticism of that. And then there's criticism of it that just like comes from a a bad faith place. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. Definitely. Like 100%. Like the Quentin Tarantino feet thing. It was like, you know, look at him putting women's feet in all of his movies. Well, exactly. That's so that's so terrible. That's kind like, of what I was thinking of when I was, yeah. So what? He he, he has a fetish. Yeah. And he likes women's feet in movies. Why is that bad? And it's like not... It's the most harmless fetish. It's not really a fetish most people share. So it's not like disgusting and freaking everybody out to just see a woman's feet occasionally. It just seems... I wouldn't even think about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, as somebody who doesn't have a foot fetish, if, if a woman's feet are on screen, I'm just like, oh, that's cute. Okay, whatever. Right. Do you think actresses are like mad? That he's filming, that he's like making their feet look pretty on screen and like filming their bare feet. I don't know. Is he like one foot off camera, like jerking it and screaming at them to like wiggle their piggies? Like, would you prefer he be like doing casting sessions, asking women to take their shirts off because he's a breast guy and he wants to see what if their breasts are going to look good on camera? But at the same time, it's like we were talking about, like I was talking about, like, so, you know, we're in a time where nobody's a pervert. You're not supposed to kink shame anyone, right? But like, everybody makes fun of Quentin Tarantino for having a foot fetish constantly. It's like, isn't this the thing you're not supposed to do? (laughs) Like, isn't this actually really mean? Like, and against the like mores of our time, but like somehow it's okay. What is something? So what is something that we've grown out of for you? Yeah. Well, I actually, I, one of the movies, this movie reminded me of that I haven't brought up yet is another one we did on the show, which is Henry and June in the way that it's like, fascinated with like the psychosexual possibilities of dark hallways in Europe, you know? (laughs) And it's like, seems to be a real thing around this moment in time. And I think that that we, that we don't really have that anymore. I don't think Europe seems like a mysterious and dangerous, sexy place in 2021. I mean like Emily in Paris, right? Like it's not, it's Emily in Paris. It's not Henry in June. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to the Prada store there and getting a coffee, same as anywhere else, you know? Yeah. What, what do you, what do you, what do you think we've grown out of Ricky? I, I told you oh, sex, the sex scenes. scenes. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I think it was we're done. So long we're ago. done. We're done here. Great. Tight. I don't think we really said anything to end. Should we, should we drop something to end the show? Like what kind of a thing? Like you go for it. Yes. Go for it. That's it. Bye. <laughs> okay. Thank you.